Welcome to Sex Ed with DB. I'm your host, DB. Let's get into it. Let's talk about one of my favorite topics ever, masturbation. While masturbation is not a dirty word, it's not uncommon to feel shame and guilt when it comes to self-pleasure. This is due to a combination of cultural norms, religious influences, lack of meaningful media representation, harmful myths we all learned in sex ed, and more. But masturbation should be talked about in a positive light, and we should be honest about the very real positive impacts it has for people, especially for women and people with vulvas. That's why I decided to take pleasure into my own hands, figuratively and literally, with a magic wand masturbation experiment. In a nutshell, I wanted to answer one question. What is the impact of daily magic wand use on my health and wellness, as well as my sexual experience, when compared to regular sexual activity and no sexual activity? Want to see how the experiment unfolded? Check out sexedwithdb.com slash magicwandexperiment now. I'm about to get personal here, so listen up. I'm going to tell you a fun fact about me that you definitely didn't know. The lube that I use most consistently is Uber Lube. I really mean it. If you were here with me right now, I'd tell you to go over to my nightstand drawer and tell me what you see. That's right. You would see a bottle of Uber Lube. If you've never heard of Uber Lube, let me tell you about it. Uber Lube is a silky smooth silicone-based lube recommended by leading doctors, and its body-friendly ingredient list makes it widely used by people with sensitivities to lubricants. Another amazing thing about Uber Lube is that it doesn't leave a sticky residue like water-based lubes do. It lasts for a long time and doesn't stain clothing or bedding. I have three bottles of Uber Lube on my bedside table right now, ready when I need it. If you're someone who wants to feel more pleasure in the bedroom, use code SEXEDWITHDB for 15% off at uberlube.com. Trust me, it's amazing. Are you falling into a pattern with your partner? Looking to spice things up but aren't sure how? Me and my partner exit our ordinary with Lion's Den. Lion's Den has hundreds of your favorite brands to help you and your partner reconnect or try something new. From novices to dungeon masters, there are products for every comfort level. With 50 plus years in business, Lion's Den is here to help. Can't make it to a local store? Shop online and chat with a customer service team member while you shop. Lion's Den offers our listeners 15% off in-store and online using code SEXEDWITHDB at lionsden.com. Hello, 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 everybody. Today is a really good one. I really nerd out all the time when I talk to directors and writers of media that I really like and consume. And today is no exception. Today we have Molly McGlynn on to talk about her new film, Fitting In. Uh, And it is a wild ride. It's a really fantastic film that's coming out February 2nd uh, in select theaters in the US and Canada. And it's about a 16-year-old girl who gets diagnosed with MRKH syndrome. And it's basically named after these four doctors. This is silly, but Mayor Rokitansky, Kuster, and Hauser, MRKH. And it's a rare congenital disorder that affects the female reproductive system. And it's basically characterized by an underdeveloped vagina and uterus, and the uterus may be small or absent, and the vagina is typically shortened. And essentially, we talk all about her real experience having MRKH. Uh, It occurs when a fetus is developing and is present in about one in every 4,500 people who are assigned female at birth. And I just learned a lot from her uh, by learning uh, about her real experiences that were also embedded in the film. It's a really, really great film. I highly recommend watching it. Once again, it's called Fitting In. Uh, and yeah, I'm, I'm just excited for, for you to listen to this really great conversation. She and I got along so wonderfully. And I, again, learned a lot and was so happy to be able to, to see the film and be able to talk to her about it because it was really interesting and very heartwarming and challenging and raw and just beautiful. Just a quick reminder, if you rate this episode five stars and leave us a review, you could win a Sex Ed with DB sticker. So email us a screenshot at sexedwithdb 
at gmail.com for your chance. Um, and if you like this episode and, uh, you know, don't really feel like doing the rating and reviewing thing, just share it with a friend and kind of tell them what you liked about it. Cause the more ears on sex ed with DB, the better for us and, uh, for us to be able to get this amazing content out to you. So here I am with Molly. Hello, Molly. Welcome to Sex Ed with DB. How are you doing today? I am doing well, busy, but grateful for the busyness. Yeah, you got a lot going on. So I'm very grateful that you're spending an hour with me today. And we get to talk about your amazing film, Fitting In. So I am thrilled to have you here to get to know you and to talk about your incredible film. And uh, I personally, my audience knows this, I'm a major film buff. I uh, studied film and media studies and uh, at UC Berkeley for my bachelor's. If I wasn't doing this podcast, I'd probably be doing something if I was lucky in media or film. So it's always a pleasure to get to talk to creatives and directors and writers and just people who are doing amazing media work and specifically when they're doing it around topics that I personally really, really care about. It's it's exciting. Uh, so thank you for being here. Um and I wonder if you could just start by introducing yourself and just telling us about your film fitting in. Um, I mentioned this to you before we started recording, but I absolutely loved the film. Um, I am so glad that I'm able to kind of break it down with you today and get to really reflect on it and talk about it with you. Thank you so much for a beautiful introduction. Um, well, my name is Molly McGlynn. I'm a writer and director living in LA, uh, though I'm from Canada originally. Um, this is my second feature film. My first feature film was called Mary Goes Round. That came out in about 2017. Uh, made that in Canada and then moved to LA about five years ago. And I direct a lot of uh, television for my day job, but I also write and direct my own stuff. So Fitting In is... Uh, what I'm calling a traumedy, loosely based on my experience being diagnosed with MRKH syndrome when I was about 16, and how that diagnosis dropped a nuclear bomb on my life. Uh, the film is deeply personal. It's terrifying to put myself out there in such an exposed way. But I think, you know, during the pandemic, when we're all sort of doing our own reckoning about the work we do and what is important. Um, you know, I had a moment of like, okay, why now? Why this story? Um, and for me as a filmmaker, if I'm not a little bit scared or intimidated, I don't want to do it. There has to be mm. some risk involved. And this was a tremendous personal risk for myself. I have never really disclosed publicly that I have MRKH syndrome, which I'm happy to elaborate on, but, um, I, you know, 10 years ago, if you asked me if I would be comfortable talking about my body so publicly over and over again, I would say that that sounds like a nightmare. But, you know, I've sure. essentially manifested my own nightmare and it's uh, become more of a dream, to be honest, and has provided a lot of healing as well. Amazing. Yeah. And I, I really obviously feel as a viewer that vulnerability and knowing, you know, reading that like this is your story and this is something that happened to you obviously I'm, i can't imagine like how vulnerable and personal that is um and i do think there's something not to be like you know silly and make this analogy but like if anyone has seen eight mile and like eminem in like the last rap battle is like i do live in a trailer with my mom like he's like i'm gonna talk about my shit before you get to talk about my shit that's exactly it it it, it provides a sense of control. And especially with this uh, condition, uh, it feels like a lot has been taken away from you. So uh, getting ahead of the story by creating it the way I wanted to felt like I was reclaiming a lot that had been lost. That's really, really powerful. Yeah. And yeah, again, like this is such a good film. It has so much heart and there. The characters are so wonderful and the acting is great and the storyline is really amazing, but it does kind of center around, right, this, this character, this 16-year-old named Lindy who gets diagnosed with MRKH syndrome. And I wonder if you can kind of talk to us a little bit about that syndrome really quick before we get into the rest, like how 
common is it? Like what should listeners know about it? And then I'm also curious as a follow-up, like what was your experience like at 16 getting diagnosed and how similar or different was it to Lindy's experience? Yeah. So uh, MRKH syndrome is a congenital reproductive condition, meaning that uh, it's from birth. Um, That's usually diagnosed around the age you would start to get your period. Um, So when I was about 16, I would say, I still hadn't gotten my period. I'm the youngest of five girls. And, you know, my mom knew this, but she would always tell me she got hers really late when she was 17. But I knew in my gut something was off. My mom and I had completely different body types. I was fully developed and, you know, looked like a woman. And my mom was very petite and just different body types. So uh, I had a sense something was off. And um, I, at that time, I think I was still seeing like a pediatrician in New Jersey and he worked out of his basement and there was like clown photos on the pictures on the wall. Like, so that guy, you know, suggested that we go to a gynecologist because it was sort of above his uh, expertise. And I was really thrust into this whole scary clinical world. Um, so essentially, you go through a period of testing um, involving uh, MRIs, ultrasounds, um, blood tests uh, to confirm XX chromosomes, uh, you know, all of it was deeply confusing and disorienting because you sense that they don't really know what's going on. Um, and looking back on it, when I had to write this script, I don't know if the diagnosis testing period was days, weeks, months, like it's all kind of a blur. And I think sort of trouble with memory is something related to trauma a lot, uh, timelines mm. sort of, uh, disintegrate. Um, but yeah, essentially I was told that I was born without a uterus cervix and an underdeveloped vaginal canal. So it's very complex as an adult, um, at 16, it's even more so because you'll never get your period. You, will never carry a child when you're not really at an age to even wrap your head around that. Mm. Further to that, the choice to be a mother or not is stripped before you can actively choose to do so or not. And then lastly, and perhaps more most urgent at that time, and what is a focus of the film is needing to, or being told I needed to fix myself, specifically my vagina, in order to have what was presumed heterosexual penetrative sex. So um, without even having a sense of my sexual needs or anything like that, I basically was handed a box of medical dilators, which you know I refer to in the movie as medical dildos. And it's sort of like, well, off you go, do this every day for twice a day for half an hour. Or if you get a boyfriend, then you don't really need to use them. You can just practice through vaginal penetration. So uh, off I went. Um, I was raised in an Irish Catholic household. Sex was not something that was talked about openly. So it just became a very private, shame-filled thing that, again, the timeline of which I don't really know. Um, But I immediately started dilating before I could emotionally wrap my head around what had just happened. And in writing this film, I realized how deeply damaging it was to be telling basically a teenager that their body is a problem that needs to be fixed. I wish that my emotional well-being was prioritized. Instead, I internalized your body is um, not sufficient. And you need to immediately fix this so you can accommodate what is presumably a man. And so in so many levels, how I physically, mentally, emotionally internalized that I am a vessel for someone else before I was able to even articulate what my needs were, Um, not to mention the social isolation of not being able to connect to a lot of your friends 
as a teenage girl and feeling like a fraud and an interloper every time someone asks you for a tampon. Um, you know, I was babysitting. I was a great babysitter. I love kids. And then all of a sudden, the grief I felt in my interaction with children, feeling like I'll never have this. Um, and then further to that, and a relationship very much explored in the film is the relationship with Lindy, played by Maddie Ziegler, and her mom, Rita, played by Emily Hampshire. Um, my mom was diagnosed with breast cancer when I was 13. So when I started getting breasts, my mom got one of hers removed. A female body was just a bomb waiting to go off for me. Mm -hmm. um, and then my own diagnosis. And she was in remission at that point. And she later passed away from cancer when I was 21. But it was very much about how we bounced off of each other at that time in our lives for different reasons. Um, but with time and perspective, I'm able to see how my mother's body betrayed her and how I was so sort of myopic in my own grief. I wasn't able to see hers. Um, and I was just mm. frustrated with not feeling understood by her. Um, so in a lot of ways, this film is a love letter to my mother and mm. a way of making amends that I was never able to do. Um, so yeah, there, there's a lot going on, but I will say like the film is, uh, there's a lot of levity and comedy and heart as well. I didn't want to make something that was preachy or hitting people over the head with, you know, a, a biology lesson. I wanted the entry point to be easily accessible for people who may not otherwise seek a film like this out. And even as a standalone, I just wanted it to be a good film. Uh, it just happens to be rooted in this very specific experience I had. Yeah, I'm getting a little choked up about the the love letter to your mom. I think like that comes through so clearly. And I can imagine as a director and writer and the fact that it's your own story, I'm sure it's a combination of you wanting to like get things right and like how they happened. And it's also maybe an opportunity for like a couple of do-overs and like things that maybe you wish had happened. And I'm sure like the mixing and like entrenching of those things can get extremely emotional. Like even just hearing you talk about it, I'm getting emotional. So it's, it's seems very, very personal and powerful and really charged and challenging, I'm sure. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, I, I totally feel what you're saying about the entry point. Like it, this is not a movie that's like clearly, you know, like sex education, right? It's like, oh, they're like, I love that show, but like it's written by sex educators and they're like every chance they get, they're giving you a lesson. And that's not what happens in this film. I think like, you know, we'll we'll definitely get to to the end of the film a little later in the interview. But like, you know, obviously we didn't really say this in the beginning, but spoiler alert, if you haven't seen this movie, um, you know, you're you're going to see it. But we we talk a lot. Uh, about we're going to talk a lot about what exactly happens in this film and and definitely the end I want to I want to touch on too but yeah the the connection between Lindy and her mom in the film like their relationship is very raw and full of love and tenderness and it feels really real to me as the viewer and I'm wondering what it was like kind of directing this relationship between these two characters and how you feel like Lindy's mom grows throughout the film because I feel like there are a lot of glints of me as a viewer really understanding kind of the shifts and the changes that Lindy's mom makes when it comes to the way she approaches and supports her daughter um, and just like the way that they kind of connect with one another. Yeah, I will say um, my mom, so I was the youngest of five girls, but there was a big age gap Um and after my parents' divorce, it was very much my mom. And I, a lot of the time, um, my mom, like Rita in the film, uh, became a therapist later in life. She only had a high school education until after my parents divorced and put herself through school with five children, got her master's, became a therapist. Um, wow. And I was always so frustrated because she was always asking me how I felt and 
you know, I just wanted to punch a wall. I had no words for it. Um, Emily Hampshire is a brilliant comedic actor. This is more of a dramatic role for her, but there is still so many comedic moments with her in terms of missing the mark in terms of how she's relating to her daughter. She's sort of a, a horrible um, sort of better help style therapist where people are, right. are hanging up on her. My mom was much better. Uh, so it's an exaggerated version, I would say. Totally. I think that just generally speaking, well, I mean, like if you're listening, you've seen Emily Hampshire in Schitt's Creek, like she, the way that she kind of like portrays this like loving but kind of like out of touch mom she's like trying to take pictures for her dating profile and is like holding a lamp kind of like weirdly (laughs) behind her head like and I don't I don't like to me I kind of assume that she was like in her 30s but the range that she in real life I don't know how old she is but like the range she has to be able to pull off playing the mother of a 16 year old daughter was very, very impressive to me um, as I was watching it. Thank you. And um, what was fun about the casting. So Maddie Ziegler started as a dancer. She, um, this is her, her, I mean, she's had a a few roles in feature films, but this is her first like real leading role. Um, She is quite shy and reserved uh, as a person, you know, which is when you look at her dancing, it's just like she's explosive, but she as a person is very different than her artistry as a dancer. And Emily is just sort of bursts into a room and with the character brings so much chaotic energy. And I felt like that tension would automatically come out on screen just because their energies are so different as people that I was like, oh, I think this will be perfect for that teenage girl mother friction. Mm-hmm. And it was, it really was. I'm just like, mom, shut up. I don't want to talk to you about this. Yeah. Um, yeah. It felt very real. Um, yeah. And I think just to kind of point back to what you were saying about this idea when you were going to the doctor and, you know, them kind of framing it as let's figure out how to fix you. You know, let's talk about possible surgical interventions. Let's talk about this dilator. Let's talk about, you know, all, all of these things when you don't really, you're not really asked or the character rather in the film isn't really asked, like, what do you think about this? How does this make you like feel? Do you want to wait? And like, you know, towards the end of the film, there is like a much better intentional scene with the resident that we kind of met earlier on where you can tell that there's like a shift in like, oh, this is how you're supposed to talk to a patient and this is good bedside manner and this is you really taking account into account like her thoughts and feelings. Um, but throughout the film, we do see Lindy kind of work on stretching her vaginal canal with medical dilators, aka medical dildos, <laughs> but they're given to Lindy by a male doctor under this guise, right, of like, practice with these and then you can get to practice with a boyfriend as if like you said earlier like making your body ready for a boy or a man is the ultimate goal and I'm wondering like what kinds of messages do people with MRKH syndrome receive that are like this or like in addition to this that kind of need to be combated or corrected yeah um I just on top of wanting doctors to assess where a patient with MRKH is on an emotional space level before they go about using dilators or surgery or third option, most importantly, that's not talked about is you don't have to do anything immediately or ever if you want. Mm. And it, so, okay, that's, that's one part. And then the second part being, I wish I understood consent as it pertained to the medical space. Um, you know, there's a scene in the film that is still difficult for me to watch where the doctor giving her a pelvic exam asks if a few residents can come in and Maddie's character agrees. And then we see these strangers with clipboards come in and you see her barely squeak out that she changed her mind, but she's ignored or no one hears her. And that is, you know, it, it's getting close to like medical sexual assaults in, in a lot of ways. Um, and as I said, you can say no at any point at the doctor. If you don't want to be there or something feels wrong, 
you can leave. Doctors are people. They're not gods. Um, you know, something interesting shooting the film, um, the doctor who played this very uh, sort of uh, tone deaf gynecologist is a lovely man in real life. But when we went to shoot the scene, he, he walked into the gynecology setup and the actor was so taken aback because he had never seen stirrups. He'd never been in the space. And it really took him a second to get his bearings. And he said, oh, my God, I had no idea that my wife and all the women in my life go through this. He was like, this is totally barbaric. And, mm. you know, we have an intimacy coordinator and everybody is comfortable and we know what we're doing. But I think it was difficult for him to even do the scene with Maddie where he was aware of the character's discomfort. And she was so great. Like, you know, it's an indie shoot. So you're always like running against the clock. But, you know, she sat up in her her um, paper medical gown. And she was like, this is way worse for you than it is for me. I'm good. She's like, I know that I'm crying, but she's like, I'm good. And then he started to relax. And I was like, so proud of her for just being like, I got you. <laughs> yeah. Wow. That, yeah. I mean, I, that is the moment when I cried when I was watching the film was when she started to cry after, like you said, she squeaked out, like, actually, like, I don't want to do this anymore. And especially, like that should be illegal like for doctors to ask underage people if they are like I don't, is that legal I don't know I mean it it happened to me I mean crazy. I again the details of which are kind of piecemeal because it was a traumatic event but being asked you know again you're a minor with the doctor right. and then then these residents were there. And in my head, I'm like, okay, I want to be helpful. And so that other people learn about this, but you sense they're like, oh, this is interesting. This is new. And then I internalize it as like, I'm a freak. And then you become sort of dehumanized and you become this medical specimen. And like to that be observed is or just something. Exactly. And that's an experience that I can imagine a lot of trans people have at the doctor or intersex people. Um, it's just, it is such a vulnerable position, like physically to lie down and put your legs on these metal things in front of strangers is so vulnerable. And I just, um, I hope that doctors are taking more sensitivity because, you know, something in, that was interesting, I would say, 70% of the women on the crew came up to me at various points during this shoot being like, doing this movie has made me realize that this happened or that happened, or I was in a lot of pain and I was ignored. And it became this thing where all these women were being reactivated and like sort of had this awakening of like, holy fuck, this is not normal. Why have so many women felt like this? And um, it's just not something we talk about. Totally. Yeah, I think it's just seen as like, oh, well, that's what you do at the gyno or this is what happens or whatever. Mm -hmm. And it's like a luck of the draw kind of thing. Like if you get a doctor who's like very conscientious and like can read the room, you know, there's just like a lot of training that should be happening in medical school around like the way in which we relate to people. And it's just not happening. Um, I think like the average medical student only gets like 13 hours or something of sex education. It's like, oh, wait, what? What's happening here? I'm like that, that needs to be corrected. Let's talk about lube and condoms. Something important to know is that oil-based lube is not to be used with condoms because the oil can cause the condom to break or tear, which would defeat the purpose of using it. Thank goodness for UberLube. UberLube is latex compatible, so it's safe and effective to use with condoms. But wait, there's more. Dispensing two drops of UberLube inside a condom and a measured pump outside will increase pleasure. What are you waiting for? Use code SEXEDWITHDB for 15% off at uberlube.com. Think about your medicine cabinet for a hot second. What's in there? Maybe you have your deodorant, face wash, toothpaste, condoms, plan B, and a new moisturizer. But what if you added abortion pills or a plan C, just in case your plan A and plan B didn't work or wasn't available? Let me tell you about getting access to abortion pills in advance with plan C. Go to plancpills.org and select the state or territory that you live in from the drop-down menu. 
Then look for the Pills in Advance icon by the provider or resource. Plan C shares not only how to get abortion pills in advance by mail in your state, but also real-time abortion care options, as well as info on in-person clinics, hotlines for support, FAQs, and more. Follow them on social media at Plan C Pills and visit PlanCPills.org to learn more, get abortion pills in advance, and join the movement. Let me tell you about one of my favorite pleasure product retailers out there, Lion's Den. If you haven't heard about Lion's Den before, I can't wait to tell you about them. Lion's Den opened its first retail facility in Columbus, Ohio in 1971. That's right, over 50 years ago. Since then, they've grown to more than 50 outlets throughout the U.S., building their reputation on high-quality products, low prices, and a knowledgeable sales staff who can help you find the perfect toy. One of the many things I love about Lion's Den is that they advocate for a sex-positive perspective on intimacy and sexual well-being, and strive to break the stereotypes and stigma surrounding sex by providing comprehensive educational resources to empower everyone to enjoy life to the fullest. They are simply amazing. Lucky for you, Lion's Den is giving my listeners an exclusive discount of 15% off your purchase, in-store and online with code SEXEDWITHDB at lionsden.com. What are you waiting for? Get your amazing Lion's Den toy now. I think as a sex educator, for me personally, like away on this show and in our content and in conversation, that I do try to be inclusive of women and members of the LGBTQIA plus community is by using the terminology, quote, women and people with uteruses, right? And I think like this automatically excludes people with MRKH syndrome who are born without a uterus and who are women and who have that identity and who just period, who just are women and they just don't have a uterus. And I'm wondering, like, how can we be more inclusive of people with MRKH syndrome and ensure that they're included in not only the conversation just as people with whom we respect um, or of whom we respect, but as well as in policy, in education, in content, uh, in other areas? That's such a great question. And it's one that is complicated and nuanced because here's the thing. I so deeply respect and advocate for inclusivity as much as possible. Um, However, it can be next to impossible to uh, hold everybody in a word or a phrase or a sentence Mm. um, or some sort of moniker. And um, that for me, that's okay. What, What matters to me is an attempt towards inclusivity. I don't expect that I'm uh, going to be represented perfectly in, in language all the time. You know, it's uh, during uh, the women's march and all of that. It's like all the pussy hats and all the shirts that were like, anything uh, you can do, I can do bleeding. And it's like, okay, that feels uh, crunchy for me. However, I have to remind myself that I don't doubt that if I had a conversation with these people and said, um, some women don't bleed and like that doesn't feel inclusive. For the most part, I feel like they would be like, oh, that's not what I meant at all. And a lot of women do bleed and that's fine too. You know, I I, I try not to take such offense to things personally. And, and I there is a fine line with um, actively excluding someone and then just kind of getting a little too sensitive, which is like weird for me to say, because I have felt excluded. But I also remind myself, like, it's not always necessarily about you. Um, For me, uh, look, if someone says they're a woman, they are a woman like that. That's, that's kind of it. So um, yeah, like the phrase phrases, women and people with uteruses, I think, you know, to me, it's just like women, right? Like maybe um, folks are included with that phrase women, but I do think there's, there is some sort of like conflating happening or kind of like, yeah, like a catch all or something that like we as sex educators try to ensure as much inclusivity as possible. And I do think we, I'll speak for myself, like have missed the mark when it comes to like researching MRKH syndrome, talking about MRKH syndrome. I think like I'm so glad that I found you and that I met you because like a year or two ago, I was like, I would really, really like to have someone 
who has MRKH on the podcast. And like, you know, I, I think like I didn't prioritize it or what, what, what have you, but I'm, I'm really glad that like we're doing this episode because I do think that it's super important and uh, it does really add to the conversation around inclusivity and people's experiences. Um, and what better way to talk about that than through this like piece of art that you have created and put yourself in. I think it's like a fantastic, I think buffer maybe is the wrong word, but you know what I mean? Like something like a lens, I, I guess I should say, no pun intended. <laughs> Thank you. And I, I would say that um, the film is a conversation starter. I am a white woman who had an experience in the medical space um, that I'm aware of the privilege embedded in that. I think there's an experience with MRKH for um, a, a person of color or from a different religious background that like, I can't be that person to tell that story. Um, I just pose questions and like, there are people with MRKH who are non-binary. Um, there are people with MRKH who are trans. Some, um, you know, there's this contentious conversation um, about whether or not MRKH is intersex or not. I did not even know it was a realm of possibility until in my 30s, I was writing the script and doing research. And like, all of a sudden, I came across MRKH uh, in sort of an intersex grouping. And I was sort of rocked because I'm an educated woman in my 30s. And I don't even know what sort of category I'm in, if any. Um, there is an intersex uh, character and actor in the film played by Kai Griffin in the uh, UK. Very important for me to have an intersex actor playing that character. But when people got rumblings of the film who had MRKH, I got a lot of very angry messages from people saying that I was doing something very dangerous to conflate MRKH with intersex. And this is all without seeing the film. The intersex character and the character with MRKH play off each other in this really interesting way. And it's a way to ask these questions. I, um, my MRKH involves everybody. And I think that people with MRKH, women have felt like a lot was taken from them. And somehow, if someone identifies as intersex, they see it as a further threat or an attempt to take more femininity away from them. But like, intersex does not deny someone's femininity. Mm. Like there's just a big confusion over what words mean. And further to that, if you look at sort of the etymology of intersex, previously uh, there was hermaphrodites and there was an association with the bearded woman and carny circuses and freak shows. And I think still sometimes my guess is that people hear intersex and think of this sort of monstrous being. When in fact, that if you take 30 seconds and Google it, kind of all it means is it's non-normative reproductive parts, which can mean a variety of things. There's many variations. Um, and I still have an evolving relationship with um, how intersex relates to me or doesn't. And I think that's kind of clear in the film. Um, if someone wants to say I'm intersex, fine. It doesn't bother me. If they want to say I'm not intersex, fine, whatever. We're all just projecting what we want onto other people mm -hmm. when what I am is maybe something messier and in the middle. And I don't necessarily have words or boxes or categories to tick off. And we've become obsessed with identity labels. And I think a lot of it is an overcorrection. And I think we needed that. Like, it, 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 I'm so happy to see people, um, you know, holding close the words and labels um, and groups they want to identify with. But the downside, if I'm being really honest, is we got to be careful because the truth of all of our identities is murkier and sometimes can't fit into a box or it evolves. And this is the thing, people's identity evolves. Um, and I just want to make space for that. And ultimately, I whatever someone wants to do with their life, whatever or whoever they say that they are, I choose to believe them. It is not my experience. Um, and I ask for the same. Yeah. I, I think that you hit the nail on the head with like, this changes for many, many people over time. And we are doing a disservice to ourselves by kind of 
attaching ourselves with super glue to certain identity labels. When words change, things shift. In the past 10 years, there's been more terminology under the queer umbrella than ever before. Uh, experiences to, or words to describe kink experiences and, and things that people prefer and don't prefer and feelings and thoughts. And so, yeah, I, I liked the way that this was covered in the film of kind of like it, you know, this is, it was a brief moment, but just if Lindy kind of Googles like is MRKH considered intersex and then there's just kind of a, a jumble of voices of like, yes, it is. No, it isn't. And I think that perfectly uh, in a brief way, but really effectively represented uh, a very real thing that we have with the internet, which is people talking over each other, people uh, projecting experiences onto other people that they themselves feel or wish they felt or don't feel or whatever it is. And yeah, I think that that I like this idea of like, it's okay that it's messier and that like you as a person are still figuring that out. Um, <clears throat> transitioning a little bit to masturbation and pleasure, which is something that we talk, sure. <laughs> please, um, which is something that we talk about on the show quite often. Um, as you, you know, imagine sex education, you know, in the U S at least definitely doesn't include, include these things in, uh, school. And so it's that much more important that we're able to talk about it honestly and openly. And so I think masturbation and pleasure play a pretty subtle but very important role in this film. And the film starts and ends with Lindy masturbating. And so at the end, my interpretation of this is like kind of taking control again of her pleasure, like after she goes through a really tough months after her diagnosis and is kind of struggling with her identity and who she is and who she likes and who she wants to be with and who she imagines herself as. And I'm right. I'm wondering if you can kind of talk me through the decision to start and end the film this way, as well as maybe, you know, the decision to include the scene with Lindy and Jax, who's the intersex non-binary character. And in this scene, there's these like amazing consent practices and showing us that pleasure for women and people with vulvas comes from the clitoris for many of us and not like, you know, like, why are we using these dilators if women and people with vulvas don't even really care about penetrative sex, right? It's like a yeah, mind fuck, yeah. no pun intended, again, when yeah. you're like really thinking about like who this is for. So I'm, I just threw a lot at you, but do whatever you will yeah. with it. Oh, so much to say. I always knew that the film would begin and end with this masturbation scene in, a, in, the, in the sense that like nothing's changed and everything's changed. Um, in the first scene, she's having this fantasy and the way it's shot, it's actually a male point of view of her pleasure. Um, and at the last scene, she looks into the mirror at herself. So those two shots tell you everything I want to say about the film. It's going from being the object to the subject mm. um, as it relates to her own pleasure. And a, and a large part of the film, when the, the dilating is happening, she's just like trying to make this vagina so she can keep her boyfriend because she thinks she needs to have sex with him to keep the boyfriend, which is something that I thought. Um, and she really loses sight of her pleasure, becomes all mechanical. Um, and there is this great uh, scene between Jax and Lindy that you mentioned where um, it's like sexy and there's consent and we see her engage in pleasure again because consent has been involved and it's not just like, uh, this penetrative dilating experience she's had. Um, and it's important for me that people know that if you have MRKH, you can have a full and healthy sexual life and experience. None of your ability to experience pleasure is um is inaccessible look even people born with quote-unquote normal vaginas like there's vaginismus there's you know women who can't have an orgasm for a variety of physiological or emotional reasons right um so i think female pleasure is so complex and it's so dependent on person to person and that's why with partners, we have to have conversations and talk about consent and learn what feels good for that specific person. It's not monolithic, but in this sort of 
patriarchal medical system that she's going through. It's just sex equals uh, penis and vagina. It's penetrative. That makes you a woman. That makes you functional. Um, But functionality through a vagina does not mean pleasure. Um, So that was important to me. And also just to like see joy and pleasure for a teenage girl in a way that is, you know, I didn't want to overly sexualize Maddie as well. She's someone that from a young age through being on a reality show, like she's been very exposed. Um, but for me, it was always about the emotion of sex, less the mechanics of it or to be like titillating or anything like that. It's like, how does this make us feel in any moment? And that really comes through. I think like, you know, as a 31 year old woman myself watching this film, it did make me kind of really reflect on like, what did my pleasure look like at that age? And like, I was really taught like, oh, if I'm, you know, gonna go go hook up with a boy, then like, the penis is like the central figure that we need to like, think about and focus on. And we're like doing the staircase method to like work up to it. And I just think that that is wrong and an incorrect way to think about pleasure. Um, And I really do think like, the more that we reframe like what pleasure really looks like and feels like for each one of us, like the more empowered that we are to like live our full best lives. And yeah, I just, I really loved the scene with Jax. I really loved the fact that it started and ended um, with that masturbation scene. And I, I also liked that the film did kind of end with this like ambiguity. Like it kind of has m- uh, Lindy kind of like going for a swim with Jax and you're like, oh, will they, won't they? Who knows? Time will tell. Like, we're not sure. And how, you know, there's no kind of like end to the conversations that Lindy's going to have with her mom. Like, there, you know, this is kind of an ongoing thing. And it really made me feel like, oh, her life, Lindy's life is going to continue after I shut my laptop. Like, it gave me kind of that feeling, which was a really beautiful way to feel after like completing watching a film. Yeah, I, you know, um, something that happens in the film too is, you know, that saying hurt people hurt people. This character is hurt and struggling and she uses men basically to dilate. She uses Jax uh, in some ways of um, not being uh, transparent in her communication about expectations or what they are. And it hurts Jax. And I think Jax probably feels used or tokenized in this way. And I'm very self-aware of that. Mm. And Lindy has to own that. They make an, an apology and attempt an amends. And at the end, that last scene, when they're swimming together, like they're skinny dipping. Um, but to me, I was like, oh, this is just like a joyful baptism moment between two people who really care about each other. And it's, it wasn't supposed to be sexualized. And to be honest, I don't know what happens for this character in in my mind. I hope she kind of takes a hot minute from dilating from everybody to like sort some of her shit out. Um, Is there a world where she and Jax have a relationship? Absolutely. Um, But I don't know. I, 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 yeah. I, I love that. I, I want you. Yeah. People can sort of transpose their own ending on Absolutely. it. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, Molly, this has been so great. As I mentioned in the beginning, which ended up totally to be true, uh, to no surprise, this is such a pleasure to get to talk to you about your work and about your experience. And yeah, definitely a super brave, very impressive thing that you're doing by kind of putting yourself uh, in many ways on the screen um, and and putting your own story there. And I'm wondering if you can share, you know, what is next for you? Uh, where can our listeners find and follow you? And when can they see this amazing film? Um, I just finished writing my third feature film. Uh, it's my attempt at like a bigger studio rom-com, but it's funny. I showed my partner the first like 10 pages and he goes, oh, it's about a sad woman again. <laughs> I was like, damn it. This is a, it's a, trope. Like, it's a, trope. a studio comedy. And I was like, sad woman is my brand, yeah. but I'll punch it up and it, it will be hilarious. Um, but that was my attempt to sort of, you know, I need a break from uh, reproductive vaginal conversation. Sure. And it's like, 
I'm, I'm a filmmaker. This is my experience and this is this film, but I have lots of other interests and things I want to do. I mean, one day I want to be like Catherine Bigelow and do a big balls to the wall, no pun intended, uh, action film. Um, I direct TV as well. I'm currently in the middle of uh, getting ready to shoot a show on Fox starring Joel McHale called Animal Control. There is like a bunch of animals running around and wow. um, that's all. Honestly, it's so different than this movie promotion, but I was like, I am thrilled. I am thrilled to show up and do fun things and do what I love and nobody's talking about vaginas. (laughs) Totally fair. Totally fair. Yeah. It's all about balance, I would say. Yeah. um, But I continue to direct TV, hopefully um, have my own TV show one day, but I'm always interested on in stories about people who exist on the periphery, either they feel that way or they are. So um, yeah, you can follow me at Molly Mary McGlynn on Instagram and um, any info related to the film, I'll be posting there as well. Amazing. And this is coming out in February? February 2nd. It's coming out in the US and Canada. Um, Cities and screenings will all be um, posted soon. Amazing. Amazing. Well, Molly, thank you again. This has been so wonderful. Uh, and I'm so appreciative of you coming on today. So thank you. This was such a great, uh, well-prepared conversation. Thank you. Our creator, host, and executive producer is me, Danielle Bezalow. Our producer and communications lead is Catherine Cohen. Our producer and communications coordinator is Sadie Leegy. Our marketing coordinator is Kate Fiala. Our music theme is by Hook Sounds. Thanks so much to our featured guests, partners, and listeners. Want to partner with us? Email us at sexedwithdb at gmail.com. For more sex ed content, follow us on Instagram at sexedwithdbpodcast and on TikTok at sexedwithdb. Want to rep us with some brand new Sex Ed with DB merch? Go to sexedwithdb.com slash merch to check it out now. See you next time. 